New York State led the nation in electric chair executions for many years. After being invented by a man from Buffalo, New York, the first execution by electricity was performed in Auburn Prison, a little over two hours east. It was an invention that promised to be a humane, efficient way to administer capital punishment, but the first executions were gruesome and brutal. George Westinghouse, the inventor of the alternating electric current used in electrocutions, remarked, they would have done better with an axe. Even so, the electric chair was adopted by Ohio in 1897, Massachusetts in 1900, New Jersey, 1906, and Virginia, 1908. It would go on to become the preferred method of execution in the United States in the 20th century. By 1915, the New York State's executions were consolidated at Sing Sing Prison, about 30 miles north of New York City on the east bank of the Hudson River. The execution procedures developed in New York were used as the model across the United States. Sing Sing's electric chair, given the nickname Old Sparky, would witness the deaths of 614 people over 70-some-odd years, with as many as seven executions a day. From 1888 to 1965, New York State had the death penalty, and in that time, five men from in and around Syracuse, New York, were executed for their crimes in the electric chair. This is the story of one of them, Alfred Ulysses Giallorenzi, a New York City telephone worker and a member of the National Guard. When he was called to upstate New York for military training, he met a married woman. They began a love affair that would end in murder and give Syracuse's Onondaga County one of its most puzzling crimes and sensational trials. I'm Sonny Hernandez. And I'm Josh McDonald. This is The Condemned. The stories of five men with different paths who arrived at the same destination, the electric chair. Here is our next story. Alfred Gia Lorenzi was roughly 28 years old when he met Angela Carlucci, the wife of a local Syracuse businessman. He was born in New York City. His mother died when he was three. When he was six, he went to Italy with his father and lived near Salerno and attended public school. He stayed there until he was 20. He then returned to the States and worked a series of jobs in New York City. He was employed at the American Lithograph Company, Woodlawn Cemetery, and the New York Telephone Company. He had also been a member of the National Guard since 1926. Gia Lorenzi was described as a short man, handsome, with a swarthy complexion and black hair. Like Angela Carlucci, he was also married. His wife was named Molly. The couple had three children, whom he had largely abandoned through much of 1932 while his relationship with Angela blossomed. Angela was married to Joseph Carlucci, an Italian immigrant. He had abandoned his wife and children in his home country when he moved to the United States. He was a successful stonemason, cellar builder, and occasional contractor. He owned several pieces of income-producing property throughout the city of Syracuse. Neighbors called him big-hearted and jovial, he weighed over 240 pounds, and newspaper reports at the time of his murder said he was somewhere between 47 and 54 years old. Carlucci had met Angela in Tulsa, Oklahoma, while looking for a job in the oil boom. Things were a little weird. Not only was she his brother's stepdaughter, but he was 38, and she was 13. What began as paternal admiration between he and Angela turned to romance when she later moved with her family from Oklahoma to Syracuse. Joseph and Angela married a short time later, and their union made the newspapers. 
The Syracuse Journal wrote on July 20, 1926, Try this on your ukulele, or work it out for a crossword puzzle, when 15-year-old Angelina Ross, 134 Gertrude Street, marries Joseph Carlucci, Syracuse contractor, her stepfather's brother. She will be a sister-in-law to her own mother, as well as aunt to her own brothers and sisters. When asked by the clerk at City Hall if she wanted to marry her elderly admirer, she answered, through tears, that she did. It is impossible to know what their marriage was like, but it seems that by the summer of 1931, Angela wanted out. She visited her friend Mary Natoli at her home in Oswego while National Guard regiments were training at Fort Ontario. While helping at a hot dog stand run by the Natolis, Angela encountered Alfred Giallorenzi, a guardsman in one of the units. He asked her for a date, but she said she had plans with another soldier that night. Angela offered to see him the next night. However, Joseph arrived in Oswego the next day and took his wife home before she and the soldier could meet again. Still, Angela and Giallorenzi began writing each other, becoming pen pals that winter. They wrote in English, which Joseph could not read. What began as a long-distance written relationship between Angela and Alfred in the winter of 1931 turned physical in 1932. He came to Syracuse that spring and spent several hours at her home. In July, when he returned to camp at Fort Ontario, she returned to Oswego to visit him. She saw him for three consecutive evenings. A week later, he returned to Syracuse and they spent several hours together at a city park. In the fall of 1932, their relationship became serious. She rented a room for him on East Willow Street where they had their secret trysts and they took long automobile rides around the countryside. It was during these visits that Alfred and Angela shared complaints about their current spouses. They planned a future together. They talked of marriage. But Angela's marriage to Joseph was a problem. A problem which, coincidentally, sat on a nest egg of roughly $18,000, about $355,000 in today's currency. There was a knock at the door at the Carlucci House at 641 Catherine Street in Syracuse, New York, on the evening of March 15, 1933. It was a cold night. Snow was still on the ground. Joseph opened the door and let the visitor in. It is impossible to know if Carlucci knew the nighttime visitor. It could have been a business call. Nevertheless, he let the man in and started a ten-minute conversation in the kitchen. Angela would tell police she did not recognize the man and said that he and her husband spoke in low undertones. But then her husband called for a quart of red wine to be brought into the kitchen. The bottle was opened, and the clinking of glasses could be heard, and then the following toast. A salute to your health. The two men, Joseph and the stranger, left the house. Angela stayed home alone. They drove off in Joseph's Chevy sedan. Joseph drove. The stranger sat beside him in the passenger seat. Forty minutes later, Joseph was found dead in the car. He had three bullet holes in the right side of his head, all within a one-inch circle. The murder happened on Thompson Road in the village of DeWitt outside Syracuse. The snow-covered DeWitt Cemetery was on the right. He was shot while the car was heading up a hill. After he was dead, the car began slowly rolling backward. The gunman in the passenger seat hopped out and sprinted through the cemetery. A couple driving on the road was nearly struck by Carlucci's car as it backed itself down into a ditch. They saw the driver slumped over the steering wheel as if he was asleep. They told the gas station attendant about the bizarre scene they witnessed. A curious bystander overheard the conversation and went to investigate himself. 
he found Joseph dead and footprints in the snow from the road through the cemetery. On the morning of March 16th, a 25 caliber automatic grip-loading pistol of black steel, a favorite weapon used in gangland murders, was found half-buried in the snow near the wall of the DeWitt Cemetery, just a few feet from the footsteps of the gunman. Police were baffled. Who would kill the seemingly jovial Mason? Robbery as a motive was ruled out. Carlucci had $40 and jewelry on his person left untouched when he died. He did not seem to have any enemies. Nine eyewitnesses claimed they saw the gunman jump out of Joseph Carlucci's vehicle and run across the cemetery. They each described the fleeing man. Police figured the assassin was about 30 years old, 5 foot 6, 140 to 160 pounds. He had dark curly hair. He wore a dark overcoat and light-colored felt hat. A question troubled County District Attorney William Martin. How could these witnesses all have a better description of the killer than the woman who had seen him for a good half hour in the kitchen of her own home, Angela Carlucci? There was no suspect to be had in Joseph's murder. News reports faded. The shooter had vanished. It seemed like the murder might go unsolved. The case went cold and Angela was awarded the $18,000 nest egg. But what she didn't know was that she was being watched. One Onondaga County Sheriff's deputy, Michael Piano, never bought Angela's account. D.A. Martin encouraged him to stick with the case. Piano began an almost constant surveillance of the Carlucci home and of the widow for months. Then, one day, six months after the killing, she made a mistake. Possibly thinking that the heat was off, she and Alfred Giallorenzi renewed their courtship. According to Giallorenzi, after Joseph was killed, he told Angela he had better not come to her home anymore, that the police would suspect he knew something about the crime. She told him that he had nothing to be afraid of. She told him that police would arrest her first, and she promised him that the authorities would get nothing out of her. If they were both arrested, they would simply stick to their story. They had met at the movies a couple of months before, well after the murders. Piano would see Giallorenzi enter Angela's apartment on more than one occasion and stay until the morning. Piano had seen enough, and a formal investigation began, targeting Giallorenzi. The Syracuse Journal reported on December 6, 1933. Dormant for several months, the investigation into the murder of Joseph Carlucci took on new life late yesterday when a new suspect was ordered held for questioning. The new suspect was Alfred Giallorenzi of New York City, and he was questioned extensively about the murder of his girlfriend's husband, but he did not admit anything. Three of the eyewitnesses were brought in hoping that they would confirm that he was the one they had seen the night of the murder. All of them said he was not. Authorities had no evidence linking him to the murder. Frazzled, D.A. Martin took a desperate step. He ordered the arrest of Angela Carlucci and then began an almost non-stop grilling of the widow. One interrogation reportedly lasted from 3 p.m. until 8 the next morning. But they could not break her, and she was becoming more and more agitated. They wouldn't treat a dog like they have treated me, she bellowed. I'm innocent and they know it. They just want to torture me. Martin was sure his investigation was on the right track, so he played his last card. 
As Angela Carlucci's attorneys prepared to apply for a writ of habeas corpus to get her released, Martin made a final offer, one he would call the most unpleasant task and the most disagreeable one he would perform as district attorney. She would receive full immunity if she testified against Gio Lorenzi and any other of the collaborators when they were found. She agreed. On December 9, 1933, Angela Carlucci confessed that she knew that her boyfriend Alfred had her husband shot and killed by a friend, Anthony Nadeel of New York City. She said that Alfred had become infatuated with her and wanted to marry her. He said her husband had to be put out of the way, and he knew a guy that could do it for $1,000. She claimed she did not tell police because Alfred and Nadeel had threatened her. She was charged with first-degree murder, which guaranteed her cooperation throughout the upcoming trials. Alfred was arrested on December 11, 1933. He pled not guilty to first-degree murder. As he entered his jail cell, he was described as sullen and silent. I'm being framed, was all he said. If he was found guilty, he was facing the electric chair. And if he did, he was more than likely going to be put there by the woman he loved, the woman he had sacrificed his family in New York City for, and he must have known that she had sold him out to save her own neck. The press was electric over the trial, a lively murder trial, especially if it involves a moderately good-looking woman and a little love interest, will outdraw almost any other kind of entertainment, wrote Syracuse Journal columnist James Warren. Justice William Dowling's courtroom was packed an hour before testimony began each day. Men and women, young and old, filled the seats and stood up against the walls. One day, when there was expected to be some heated testimony, a crowd of onlookers trampled a court attendant, breaking some of the man's ribs as they pushed their way toward the gallery. Police officers were often called to clear the hallways in front of the courtroom. They threatened to beat people with their nightsticks. For those who could not get inside the courtroom, the story was featured in several of the true crime magazines popular at the time. During the second half of the 1930s, the story of Angela Carlucci's checkered career appeared in such publications as American Detective, Inside Detective, Official Detective, and Master Detective magazines. Alfred G. Lorenzi would be defended by Syracuse's most famous defense attorney, Richard Shanahan. Shanahan was known to have a streak of winning cases that seemed hopeless. Of the three known conspirators, and with Anthony Nadeel still at large, Gio Lorenzi was the only one facing charges. It would be Shanahan's job to destroy the credibility of the prosecution's star witness, Angela Carlucci. In his opening remarks, Shanahan said, She told no story of the killing at all until she had been given the promise of immunity, and then she concocted the one she will tell here. She is the real culprit. She is telling the story to save herself. The fascinated spectators finally got what they wanted on February 21st, when Mrs. Carlucci took the stand. A comely black-haired young woman, clad in a black-white trimmed dress and wearing no jewelry except a necklace to which a crucifix was attached, and the gold wedding ring on the third finger of her left hand, was how the Syracuse Herald described her. She testified that Gia Lorenzi was the first to suggest the murder of her husband. Then he promised he would divorce his wife. She told the jury she initially refused, but agreed to the plot, offering to use the money in her husband's estate for the hitman. She said that the receipts totaling $50 the prosecution possessed were part of the payment to Nadeel for the murder. Shanahan scored points by getting Carlucci to admit that her husband sold bootleg alcohol out of his basement and often had strange visitors at night to purchase some. 
Possibly it was someone related to this illegal activity which had been the cause of the murder. More damaging testimony came from Gia Lorenzi's wife Molly, who testified that her husband left New York City with Anthony Nadeel on March 14, 1933 for a hunting trip, the day before Joseph Carlucci was killed. Then Gia Lorenzi's boss at the New York Telephone Company and self-described snooper said he had searched his locker on several occasions in February 1933 and read letters that implicated Gia Lorenzi in the killing. Incredibly, the plan to kill Joseph was laid out in some detail in one of the letters. Alfred Gia Lorenzi finally took the stand on March 2nd, his very life on the line. He said he had no knowledge of Joseph Carlucci's murder until after it had happened, adding he did not even know the man's name until he was dead. He knew Angela simply as Mrs. Angela Ross. He said that Angela boasted about killing her husband and her ability to remain quiet when first questioned by police. He recounted Angela, I could not stand him anymore. I had him killed by a friend of mine in Brooklyn. That's the truth. I had it done, and it cost me $500. The trial lasted almost a month. The jury reached a verdict in a few hours. Guilty. It was said that Alfred G. Lorenzi grinned when he heard the verdict. He said something to his attorney. Some thought it was, that's that. A reporter said that his left hand trembled during the verdict. Angela Carlucci was less concerned. When asked what she thought of the verdict from her cell, she grunted, he had it coming to him. The verdict marked the first time in this section, and possibly anywhere, that a defendant had been convicted of murder in the first degree when he was not the actual killer, and when the evidence against him depended entirely upon the testimony of an admitted accomplice, the Syracuse Journal reported. When he was taken back to his cell, Gilorenzi ate heartily and sang his songs as if he did not have a care in the world. He continued to find solace in music when the trial was over. It was the evening of March 7, 1934, and Gialorenzi found himself alone in his jail cell, convicted of first-degree murder. He knew that his life would soon end in the electric chair. His only companions that night were a couple of guards, part of a 24-hour vigil to stop the convicted man from committing suicide. His necktie and his belt were taken away. The guards did permit him to have a guitar in his cell, and as he prepared himself for his sentencing four days away, he began to sing songs he had composed in his head. The guards called them bizarre, gruesome, and weird. I wonder how it feels to sit in the electric chair, was one lyric. In another, which a guard would later tell the Syracuse Herald gave him a creepy sensation, went, I should write to my mother, but what's the use? She'll see it in the papers that they gave me the juice. Gialorenzi's longest song, was a 40-verse work devoted to the woman who was largely responsible for him facing death, Mrs. Angela Carlucci. She also sat in a jail cell just one floor above Gialorenzi's. In his song Angie, he referred to her as my girlfriend in the room upstairs. Both Gialorenzi and Angela had conspired to kill her husband Joseph, but neither of them had fired the three fatal bullets that killed him. Nonetheless, Gialorenzi was sentenced to death, and on the same day, Angela was being set free. The former lovers even passed each other in the hallways as they headed in opposite directions. They did not look at each other. She is as guilty as anyone, but I believe that Gialorenzi was the motivating personality in the crime. Now I ask the court to enable me to keep my promise, District Attorney William Martin told Justice Dowling at the hearing. The judge told the DA, 
I think you showed sound and excellent judgment in your handling of this case, although I, too, regret the necessity of freeing this woman. Angela was almost penniless. The cost for her lawyers had run through her savings, and on March 5th, a court ruled that her husband's first wife was entitled to his estate, not her. She left town and would spend the next couple of years looking over her shoulder, wondering if friends of Gia Lorenzi or Anthony Nadeau might seek revenge. She returned to Syracuse in 1941, years after Gia Lorenzi's execution, to testify against the man who shot her husband, Nadeau, when he was finally apprehended in Van Dyke, Michigan. He had been living with a wife and two children under the name Salvatore Siciliano. Nadeau would be sentenced to death, but it would be commuted to life in prison by Governor Herbert Lehman. He was paroled from Attica State Prison in 1968. Angela Carlucci would later remarry and move to Akron, Ohio. Efforts to bring a new trial for Alfred Gia Lorenzi continued throughout 1934, but they were denied. As the days ticked down to his February 7, 1935 execution date, he continued to wonder why he should pay with his life for being an accomplice to murder while another could walk away. For days, he hoped Governor Lehman would grant him clemency. Not yet, the Sing Sing guard said after each time Gia Lorenzi asked if there was any news from Albany. I'll keep my chin up, he would respond. He was visited by his wife Molly one last time. His last meal was steak, chicken, french fries, candy, fruit, and desserts. Executions at Sing Sing were traditionally carried out on Thursday nights after 11 p.m. Prisoners were led down the corridor, known as the Last Mile, by seven guards and a prison chaplain to the death chamber. Inside the room waiting would be the warden, the state electrician, two doctors, and 12 state witnesses. Alfred G. Lorenzi entered the death chamber at 11.12 p.m., as promised, with his chin up. He was composed and walked steadily to the chair before being strapped in by the state electrician. G. Lorenzi was the last of three executions that night. After riding the thunderbolt to eternity, he was pronounced dead at 11.15 p.m. His wife claimed the body. This concludes the story of Alfred G. Lorenzi, this is our last story of the five men from in and around Syracuse, New York, to be executed by the state. If you're just joining us now, check out our previous episodes for more stories. The Condemned is hosted by Sonny Hernandez and Josh McDonald. Stories written by Jonathan Croyle and Steve Carlick with editing assistance from Sonia Duntley. Recorded and produced by Katrina Tullick. Thank you for listening to The Condemned. Want more? Check out Syracuse.com slash condemned to see historical images, videos, and additional stories connected to the electric chair. If you like what you're hearing, please share this with your friends and rate and review our series as it helps new listeners find us. We really appreciate it. This is a Syracuse.com production.